0: Thanks for tuning in to the Co-Live podcast, where we explore learnings, insights, and discussions with co-living operators and professionals from around the world. If you're a first-time listener on our podcast, just a quick reminder that Co-Live is the world's largest co-living association with the goal to connect, educate, and empower co-living professionals. Today's episode has been recorded during one of our monthly meetups, where we discuss a wide variety of topics related to co-living. To join our network or find out about future meetups and other events, please visit co-live.org. That's C-O hyphen L-I-V dot org. This week's episode is brought to you in partnership with Young Global Living, the platform for your co-living space based on your preferences. With Young Global Living, you can find a new place to live, discover new work opportunities, and connect with other community members all on one platform. Young Global Living wants to make experiences the new kind of living by matching co-livers with like-minded communities and providing co-livers with local perks where location is no longer a barrier. Feel free to look in the show description for more info on Young Global Living, as well as a link to their website, Young Global Living, where you want to be. Let's hop right in to today's episode.
1: Thank you very much guys for um, coming tonight and for um, spending your Tuesday evenings listening to me. Um, I will start with a brief introduction about myself um, and then we'll jump into the talk um, and then yeah at the end ask any questions. So um, let's get started. Uh, my name is Lucy McAnally. uh I'm originally from Buckinghamshire. And I studied uh, an undergraduate degree in art history at the University of East Anglia. Um, I graduated in 2017 and then I moved over to Phnom Penh in Cambodia to work on some property development projects with um, private investors. I am um, self-taught as an interior designer when I was out there and um, I worked on two residential projects um, delivering um, home solutions for, for expats living in, in Phnom Penh. And I also worked on a commercial build with a hotel as well. Um, whilst I was out there, I was working with a couple of startups, but I ultimately felt like Cambodia wasn't really my place. So I moved back to the UK um, in January, 2019, I moved to um, Scotland. Um, I lived in Perth and I um, worked as a digital marketing manager at the City Region Deal at the University of East, uh, University of Stirling, rather. Um, And we were delivering inclusive growth deal projects. So that's something I'm going to introduce you a little bit about tonight. And um, the City Deal agreed to sponsor my master's in interior design, which I've just completed at the Glasgow School of Art. Um, And that's something that I did half in uh, lockdown as well. So um, that was very interesting. Again, I'm going to touch a little bit on the projects that I was doing um, whilst doing my master's degree as well. Um, I am now a graduate, master's graduate. And um, this year I've been helping um, small business owners uh, delivering um, marketing, branding and graphic design services with my brand and so forth. We're based in Edinburgh. Um, Check us out. So for the purpose of tonight, I'm going to be talking about um, my interior design projects um, oh next slide yeah this talk will focus on um, intergenerational living and how appealing to a multi-generational market can empower communities and give an edge in, in the co-living industry um, we'll be focusing on three kind of topics tonight um, starting with intergenerational living and the work i did with the city region deal on the inclusive growth deal project Um, We'll be focusing on um, the co-design method, which is something that I um, applied to my uh, projects at university um, and how that can empower communities. And finally, I'll touch on my thesis, which was called co-design and the pandemic. (laughs) I don't know why I keep doing this. Sorry, guys. (laughs) So intergenerational living. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the term before. Um, There are sort of two main definitions that we'll be focusing on. Um, There's the obvious one, which is um, about multi-generations living together. And that's something that I um, saw when I was living in Cambodia, particularly instances of families of multiple generations living together under one roof. Um, And this is something that a lot of people from uh, cultures such as in Asia um, and do, but for the purpose of what we were doing with the city deal, we were focusing on older generations. So um, I have a quote here from, uh, or a definition from the um, RIBA, who state that older generations can live independently, um, but within uh, a balanced and supportive community. But why are we focusing on an older generation? Well, we are currently experiencing an aging population, In 2019, um, the UN stated that there are 143 million people aged over 80 in the world. um, And this is projected to rise to 426 million by 2050. Uh, In the UK in 2019, there were 3.2 million people aged over 80. Um, And I don't know how coronavirus may have affected this um, because the status from last year, obviously. But despite this, um, there are still an aging population. And and with people aging, there are um, issues that that the elderly struggle with such as eating bathing and dressing themselves this rises not only with aging but with help health complications as well and um it affects more people from a lower income background um let's talk about housing in the uk nearly 38 percent of homes were built before 1946 and are therefore more at risk from cold damp fires and general falls hazards. So this isn't ideal for for elderly residents um, living in these situations. With the City Deal, we were working with um, patients with dementia and this is because um, at the University of Stirling, there is the world leading Iris Murdoch Centre, um, which is a world leading um, centre for dementia research named after the British novelist um, who um, suffered from Alzheimer's disease, Iris Murdoch, who passed away in the late 90s. Um, at this stage, I have to credit the DSDC at the University of Stirling, um, the Dementia Services Development Centre. They're a group of uh, social scientists Uh, architects and designers who are doing amazing things um, in in the world of dementia research. Some of you have experienced um, people uh, like loved ones um, suffering from dementia, I'm sure, Um, but just briefly kind of go over what what dementia is. Dementia is a disease that damages the nerve cells that communicate messages across the body. Um, It affects more people aged over 65, but uh, there are instances of of people being diagnosed in, in younger ages. Um, in the UK there are currently 850,000 people living with dementia and this is projected to rise to 1 million by 2025 in the UK and this is staggering one third of people born after 2015 will get dementia in later life. Um, this is because they live longer and they will live longer and so dementia is an illness that is directly associated with an aging population. Um, people who are uh, have dementia, have difficulty remembering things, problems learning new things, and suffer from a lot of stress. It affects the short-term memory before the long-term memory. So um, a a grandparent who has dementia will uh, forget the names of their grandchildren before they forget the names of their own children. And in the home, uh, patients with dementia will need twice as much light um, at least than, than those who don't, and that's to navigate around their home. They also can't tune out background noises. So if you were speaking to somebody who had dementia and uh, the television was on, they wouldn't be able to differentiate the two different different sounds and where they're coming from. So I just want you guys to now look around the space that you're inhabiting. Um, You're probably at home at the moment due to everything that's going on and I wonder if you can uh, kind of see If you had been diagnosed with an illness such as dementia or perhaps a physical disability, which is something that dementia can lead to, would your home be able to support you? And in most cases, it probably can't. Um, With physical disabilities, things like light fittings and door handles are placed too high and plug sockets are too low as well. Um, A lot of patients with dementia, they do live at home, but they have a lack of independence. And this means that uh, they will probably uh, have to go into care at some point, and this seems to be the only solution at the moment. But uh, intergenerational living is a solution, and going back to the quote from the RIBA, uh, it allows older people to live independently, but within a balanced and, and supportive community. And at the City Deal, we were proposing um, a research and development centre in the Stirling and clamp region, uh, an innovation hub to develop research about dementia and to support uh, the local older generation in a mixed use research facility. Uh, and it was also going to be a place to, to upskill local workers as well. So, um, yeah. I hope you guys can still hear me at this point. Thumbs up if you can still hear me. We can Great. still hear you,
2: darling. We are, all, we are all listening
1: and taking all in. in. Great. Um, one of the case studies that we used for, for the City Deal projects was uh, one by Marchese Partners who are an architects group and a global consultancy enhancing the standards of living for elderly people um, and they're based primarily in Australia but also in the UK and here's an example here of, of their Q uh, Riverside project. Um, Marchese partners create residential projects for the elderly um, that does not push them outside uh, the centre of the city. So a lot of care homes you'll find are sort of pushed away, out of sight, out of bind, and away from, from sort of the city centre or a hub where elderly people can, can, can go to sort of um, places like cafes and things like that. This sort of brings that into that space. um Partners uh, sites, they design um, visitor centers, cafes, uh, commercial centers as well, and landscape gardens in the case of this one at Kew. So they're bringing young people into the space as well. And that's truly intergenerational. They're mixing old with new, uh, with young rather. Um, and this uh, sort of allows the elderly uh, more empowerment as well. And there's other examples of where uh, residential spaces for the elderly mixed with uh, spaces for younger people, such as nurseries. Um, One example is the Apples and Honey Nightingale Nursery, which was built at the site of Nightingale House, a care home for the elderly Jewish community in South London. Um, When elderly people interact with young people, such as children, it alleviates loneliness and isolation Um, and it enables the elderly to feel that they are no longer the object of care and so they feel empowered. It also boosts a sense of self-worth and their quality of life. So both of the examples are about creating uh, supportive environments for elderly people. But I move away from um, Dementia Now and uh, talk to you a bit about this case study uh, for, for elderly people. You've probably all heard of the Older Women's Co-Housing Project in North London. Um, 26 women aged 50 to 80 live in this community. They have their own private residences and balcony, um, but they share kitchen spaces, common rooms and gardens and they host a lot of events in these spaces as well and they invite their families in and younger people in. So it's again like mixing their generations, um, which improves their happiness and these women and feel empowered which I think by this image here you can tell they're all very happy and it's an innovative form of co-housing as well so they define co-housing as a form of group living set up and run by the people who live in it the aim is to promote neighborliness uh, combat isolation and mutual support residents will also be empowered to become involved with the local community Uh, it is not a community cut off from the outside world and I think that's really key about this um co-housing solution. They also see co-housing as a way of living as a cooperative friendly neighbours. So I wonder if you guys, if you live in a co-living situation, live with others or perhaps you are operators for a co-living brand, do you think you or your residents feel the same way that you are living as cooperative friendly neighbours? So we've looked at um, the elderly and now I think it's important to understand how we can kind of use uh, methods and, and ways, frameworks to, to help generations mix and, and become truly multi-generational, intergenerational. Uh, last year, I attended a workshop uh, ran by the London-based charity Glasshouse Community-led Design, and it was called Intergenerational Cities. Um, they hosted one in Glasgow. They also hosted them in London and Blackpool. and They were providing solutions to change the way that our cities look like. By exploring how we can consider all ages in placemaking and thinking across generations or intergenerationally, but why do we need to think uh, rethink the way that our cities are designed? Well, we've all heard of the term the death of the high street, which refers to the diminishing number of retail outlets in the city centres, um, and this sort of conversation around how to repurpose them and for what use and how they can become sustainable under the um, UN's Sustainable Development Goal uh, Sustainable Cities and Communities. But We also need to rethink how to redesign our cities because we need to design spaces to suit all generations and all genders as well. And why is this? Well, historically in the UK, the urban design was controlled by men who were the merchants, landowners, and clergymen that owned the majority of properties in the city. So the typology of Britain city centers were intended mainly for men and their economic activities, whilst domestic areas were reserved for family, home, and women. So the zoning of the cities became this commercial center and then residential sort of being pushed out You can is a, a lot in the UK. Cartography or mapping was a tool that was used to control the urban design to order the city and manipulate the built environment in order to control social problems such as the behaviors of working classes and outbreaks of disease such as cholera. And here I've got an example of poverty maps um, which were mapping of London and kind of basically pushing people into segments based on their class um, and and where they were in, in the city. In New York City in the 1860s and 70s, a campaign emerged to eliminate the public presence of women from the streets as they signified sexual vice. And the exclusion of women from public places is historical. Uh, women were excluded from the ancient Greek Agora, which was a public place uh, where freedom of speech was practiced. Um, it was not only women that was excluded, but foreigners and slaves as well. So there is an argument that public places exclude so- certain social groups. And the Intergenerational Cities event that I attended aimed to collect more research around this. Um, and suggest certain inclusive solutions via brainstorming and collaborative design sessions, which mix generations, as you can see in this photograph. Um, collaborative design or co design is a method used to understand how spaces can meet the needs for users. It can also be used to understand uh, what co co-livi- living residents want and how to design co living spaces around their needs. <laughs> Co-design is a contemporary practice involving a facilitator who examines a site, place, or object within a space, inviting groups of people to engage collaboratively through iterative process of social activities, and the scope of this is broad, where viewers become active participants and members of a collective group. Everyone's input is validated with equal merit, and participants should be able to recognise their contribution in the final result, but co-design does not necessarily need to reach an outcome, because it is the ideas, experiences and possibilities that result from these interactions that brings the significance of co-design. Co-design is multidisciplinary, it engages with community, society, empowerment and agency, and it first emerged in the 1990s and was known as New Genre Public Art, a term coined by the artist and activist Suzanne Lacey. It was described as a public art often activist in nature and created outside institutional structures to engage directly with audiences and it often deals with vanguard groups such as feminist minority ethnic groups and Marxist socialists. Um, For example, when women um, undertake these art making processes, they see their collective identities um, through the the process and this may lead to female emancipation. Um, And this case study, see the image here, it kind of exemplifies this, Suzanne Lacy's um, coalition with Chicago women was basically a project where Women were sort of excluded from the signage in Chicago, and she and a group of artists wrote the names of of women we should be celebrating, or they should celebrate in in Chicago on these boulders, and then people interacted with them in a, more, uh, a di- different ways. Like this girl is obviously sitting on it, but some people were also engaged with the boulders as if they were pieces of artwork. So New Genre Public Art deals with public art not in terms of material objects, but by the ephemeral process of interaction between participants and facilitator. And um, after Suzanne Lacy's project took place that it led to a wave of community led projects across Chicago. In the contemporary world, New Genre Public Art is known as social engaged art, defined by Tate as um, including any art form involving people and communities um, in debate, collaboration or social interaction organized for education, outreach or artistic purposes and is sometimes political. This case study is from uh, Assemble Studio who are a group of architects and the winners of the 2015 Turner Art Prize for their project Granby Four Streets. Um, It's a community led project uh, rebuilding Granby an impoverished neighborhood in Liverpool affected by local gentrification projects in the area. So it was a rows of terraced houses that were kind of left empty due to um, rising house prices in the area. Granby was originally a lively high street and home to Liverpool's most racially and ethnically diverse community. Since 2013, Assemble have been uh, working with the local residents to bring the homes back into use as affordable housing and um, as public spaces for enterprise opportunities. And now the site, uh, the houses, celebrates the local heritage and supports local artisans. Inspired by Assemble's work, I applied um, the co-design method to facilitate my own workshops in Glasgow. Um, so I've hosted three workshops. You can see uh, that's the pictures of the three workshops here um, and everyone who participated had lived in or experienced Glasgow at some point in their lives. And this is the point of commonality for, for the co-design process. Um, the participants took uh, part in a brainstorm sessions and co-design sessions, which Um, I chose as making activities. This is optional because it didn't work so well when people um, didn't have like an artistic background, so um, designers definitely just went ahead and created stuff and people, those who who weren't so creative um, or were maybe afraid to apply their creativity to the process, struggled a little bit more. Out of the workshop, the participants felt that in Glasgow, there was not enough exposure to the arts for young people and not enough encouragement for young people to go into career into the arts. They felt that LD people were lonely in Glasgow and excluded from mixing with other generations and that uh, people of uh, ethnic minority cultures felt excluded from daily life in Glasgow as well. Uh, They felt there was a lack of ownership over and responsibility of public spaces and there was not enough inclusive spaces available. So we came up with hypothetical solutions um, for Glasgow to design an inclusive space that encourages interaction and responsibility of that space as well as maintenance. Um, We decided that more spaces need to be designed for play and creativity, um, that knowledge sharing should take part, uh, take place and um, sharing skills over things like communal gardening where Uh, Young people could learn about sustainability of food and the supply chain and culinary knowledge could be passed down um, from the generations or um, from different cultures as well. So um, the first uh, workshops took place physically, as you can see, this took place before the pandemic. um, I did these projects uh, in the end of 2019. Um, But for my final project, um, I had to do my co-design workshops Uh, in a different way. And um, you might notice why there's a picture of a park on the screen. Well, um, I had to choose a site for my project that um, was something that was accessible during that period. So basically the the whole thesis project, my final project at the Glasgow School of Art was something that was very open-ended and and very broad. And I chose um, to focus on a site um, that I could analyze uh, during this period. And uh, I chose my local park, the North Inch in Perth. I wonder if you guys used your park regularly, uh, local park regularly during lockdown, because we certainly did. We we don't have any outdoor space. Um, And would you use your park um, as regularly in the second lockdown as well, now that um, we're going into winter? My uh, starting point for my project was um, an article written by um, Lindsay Hanley for The Guardian called Lockdown for Slave Bear Britain's Class Divide. Um, In it, she says that Tower Hamlets, where the highest level of child poverty in Britain is experienced, witnessed um, the closure of their local Victoria Park during the spring lockdown, as uh, the local residents ignored social distancing regulations. Um, Yet, in uh, London's wealthier suburbs, many parks remained open. And Hanley argues that space, how it's governed, how it's made available to some, and denied to others, is always political. So parks actually exclude certain social groups from, from these spaces. Um, parks were uh, have been historically associated with hegemony. Um, the definition originally refers to deer parks in Britain's castles and palaces owned by the monarchy. Meanwhile, the common people participated in com- uh, community life at informal spaces around churchyards, riverbanks and city walls until the lands were seized by the aristocratic landowners as a result of the 1604 Enclosure Act. And then parts became associated with country estates in Britain. Certain design features in these um, estates represented the competitive commercial and capitalist um, 18th century British society. This includes things like temples and statues, um, which basically reflect on the philosophical ideas Um, pathways that basically kind of determine how we were going to navigate through a space um, and ha ha walls, which um, showed the sort of expanse and wealth of of an estate as well. And uh, if you go down to your local park, you might notice that some of these features actually feature at your park because um, when parks uh, in the cities began to emerge in 1847, um, as a result of an intense period of urbanization experienced in Britain, they started to include these design features. Parks uh, created respite from the city for people, um, particularly the working classes, and they were metaphorically referred to as lungs of the city. But um, because of these design features, um, you can kind of in you can kind of gauge from, from the parks that they actually uh, signify systems of control over working class people. And this goes back to Hanley's article about um, what's happened this year, and there's the distinctions between the users of a space. And those who control it, the users being the local community, um, the owners in most cases being uh, the local council. And here's an example from this year that I think really represents this because um, the park owners at uh, Domino Park in Brooklyn, New York, um, decided to paint white circles on the grass to uh, determine where households place themselves in the park. But I think this really represents control. um, And that sort of justifies my point um in order to uh, sort of understand a little bit more how people use spaces such as parks and, and what i was doing during the lockdown was visiting the site daily um and um yeah during lockdown people basically came to the park quite a lot for exercise or the family to walk around the site um but when restrictions eased uh, and this is what you can see on this uh photo but on Uh, when restrictions eased, many people came to the center of the park and many people actually came together um, despite the fact that we had social distance and regulations in place. Um, Yangel, the architect states that experiencing other people represents a particularly colorful and attractive opportunity for stimulation. Um, And he documented how people use spaces um, in 1962 when he visited uh, Siena's Piazza del Campo every day and watched people stay all day in in the space and mingle in groups. how people use spaces today also reflects on how historically spaces were used. And the Piazza del Campo was originally a historic marketplace and a site for the city clans to come and rival. I looked back into the history of my site and found that in 1396, um, the battle of the clans took place which was a public event where um, uh, to end the city clans feuds. And originally the site was a sacred site um, owned by the black friars um, who were, uh, took part in public preaching. So this sort of, kind of uh means that people are still using the site in similar ways to come together as as part of a community and it led to a conclusion that the pandemic has led to an, an emergence of new rituals such as the desire for social interactions between members of the local community and i wonder whether you guys and your situations during the first lockdown and perhaps you noticed this through the second lockdown whether you felt part of the community or you sort of were Um, desired to be part of a community once you came out of the first lockdown Um, and whether you've done anything about that towards the second lockdown as well. Um, Art historian Mi Kwon states that another way of creating a community is by people who have been systematically excluded from political and cultural processes that affect if not determine their lives Um, and this focuses on the fact that co-design methods are community specific Um, I chose to apply a a feminist methodology to my co-design methods and focused on how women uh, women being excluded from, from this urban space, um, which we kind of touched on earlier. Um, I asked uh, my next sort of port of calls to ask uh, female users of uh, my local park whether they felt restricted in the park. Um, Eight participants uh, took part in this um, survey and um, I got two sets of results, one of which was from um, mothers aged over 35 who felt quite negative about using the park as it was too far from their home. This goes back to the zoning thing. Uh, It had a lack of toilet seatings and cafe facilities, so they couldn't spend all day there. By the time they arrived, they had to come back because somebody needed the toilet. Um, There was a lack of street lighting, so they felt a little bit afraid. Um, And perhaps even more so, uh, they would feel afraid during the second lockdown. Um, Also, uh, they were scared that their children may uh, catch the virus from the play equipment, and there wasn't enough play equipment available, so the kids were all clustered around in the same space, and they didn't like that. Meanwhile, a uh, single young women uh, aged under 35 felt really positive about using the space and uh, they used uh, parks more uh, regularly during lockdown for exercise. One of my participants uh, focused on uh, mindful walking to improve her mental health. Uh, some people met their friends for takeaway coffee. And so the park became an alternative space to cafes and bars during, during that period. Um, some women as well uh, wanted to explore a new area. I took these results to a digital co-design workshop that I facilitated, adapted to the conditions of the pandemic and um, asked my participants, who were all female, how we would redesign the park based on these results and um, what these women had to say as well. And we designed this, which is a, a space for multi-purpose activities. Um, it breaks up an open space in the park and um, puts in specific uh, spaces for for different things such as seating um, and cafe facilities more play equipment and outdoor gym equipment for all and the communal garden space as well um, and one participant stated that it's all about adapting to what people need and being flexible about the coronavirus um, situation and the pandemic um, and this kind of follows what uh, uh, in a case study here is a uh, superrilla which is from uh, the mayor of Barcelona, who basically pedestrianised the streets of Barcelona and and redesigned them into pocket spaces uh, for for everyone, like different activities, uh, but mainly it was focused on providing uh, activities for women and their children, such as seating and play equipment. And the process that was involved was a a co-design process by asking the women what they wanted. And uh, it follows what historian Maureen Flanagan states that when women design urban spaces, they generally advocate people-centered solutions uh, focused on how people lived in and experienced the city. And some of my participants as well were really keen for this sort of um, pocket park uh, solution uh, so they could have sort of these multi-purpose spaces near their homes. To strengthen my point more, I uh, facilitated another workshop where I brought both men and women together uh, to ask about the design of parks. And um, this was done, by the way, when physical restrictions allowed it so two households could come together. Uh, Brought the site to a group via a video and asked the group whether parks should be used by everyone. The men disagreed. Um, And should we fill the open space, which is what we've done in the previous um, co-design workshop again the men disagreed they liked an open space and it's quite interesting if you've read the book invisible women um, a research project that took place in vienna in the 1990s found that at age 10 um women uh, girls would not want to be um seen in the park that their, their presence in parks decrease uh significantly uh, they didn't want to go into the large open spaces as um, girls have to compete with boys for space and they didn't have the confidence to do this so um, instead of kind of saying there's a problem with the women's confidence uh, there was actually a problem with park design and so when they redesigned the parks and split them up into smaller spaces they actually found that the girls would enter that space so I think that's interesting because it's sort of um, reflects on what I'd done as well. Uh, so yes, during my final workshop, I'd asked the participants to redesign the part to suit their needs. And it's interesting because they had come up with an idea where um, there was, they had a, implemented an exclusive membership structure with payment structure and um, responsibility over the space. And then it strengthens the argument that men typically plan spaces around commercial value. So I guess just to like finish on and get back to the point about co-living and how Um, This method that I've introduced to you guys tonight can be applied um, to empower local communities and to think intergenerationally. Um, Yeah, these are just a few points uh, or suggestions for how uh, you can facilitate your own co-design sessions, which includes collecting data and surveys on how people feel about the spaces and definitely ask people and host discussions, prepare group activities such as collaborative design um, sessions, co-design co- sessions and, and making activities. Um, when people come together into groups, they do tend to compromise and consider all members of the group and almost create their own community. So I think that's something really key. And of course, to um, include a diverse group of gener- of people from multiple generations, genders and cultures. So thank you very much, guys. I hope you enjoyed tonight. And if you have any questions, let me know. <laughs>
2: Virtual applause, please, for our fantastic speaker. And now questions, one after the other. Go, go, grill her, grill her. <laughs> so I love that there's a lot of women on the, on the meeting tonight, on the event tonight. It's not, not, nothing against the men. Huh? And Raul, I told you from the first minute that I'm so happy every time I see you because you're my number one fan since day one. So thank you very much. So uh, there is a couple of questions that I have for Lucy, but if there is anyone who already has a question, please either pop it in the chat or feel free to unmute yourself and interact and go for it. Anyone um, ready?
3: Hi, um, is there a difference uh, with the term uh, co-living and then the term co-housing? Did you get
1: that, Did you get that Lucy? If there's a difference between co living and co housing. Yes. Um, yeah. Let me get my notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's what I found is the difference is the fact that um, with co housing, which is um, this model that the Old Women's Co Housing Group have set up, that they've like self organized themselves. Um, and with co-living uh, from what I've noticed that it, it seems to be other people organizing um, different groups and bringing other groups together that's the main thing that I've sort of noticed it is the difference I think generally the sort of idea is the same because it says here it's about promoting um, neighbourliness and and making sure that um, it's combating isolation and things like that and uh, being part of a cooperative so it's yeah, the co part is still in it, Um, but yeah, that's my take on it. I don't know if anyone else has any other ideas, probably more knowledgeable about the co-living aspect than me, but if anyone else wants to say anything, please jump in.
2: Yeah, I'd I'd like to jump in in there, and if there is anyone else after, please feel free to. I think uh, another big difference between co-living and co-working It's literally uh, the ownership. Suzanne, please feel free to intervene. You have a lot of experience on that. So, you know, this is very, it's very open discussion. So feel free. So, but uh, co-housing, most of the time, it's literally people coming together, maybe before building their property and kind of like thinking about, say, creating a cooperative or or this sort of community before and decided they want to purchase and live there also on a longer term. Co-living is often, not always, but often more like rental solution, and it can be seen more of a shorter term and more flexible. This is also one of the difference that I come across a lot. Mm -hmm. Suzanne, please.
4: Yeah, co-housing tends to be, as you acknowledge, um, people living in their own homes, which are fully, um, fully, They've got their own kitchen, living spaces, um, bathrooms, etc. They're not they're not sharing any of those spaces with others. They tend to be owner occupiers, and they tend to be communities that have been developed amongst the cooperative themselves. And and as you acknowledge, they are normally um, owned. And co living seems to me to be more looking at. Um, maximizing the square footage by restricting some of that space and then opening that those social spaces up so that people individually have less space but they may have more communal space
2: if anyone else wants to intervene and and say something please please feel free we're not gonna yeah judge don't have
4: to be <laughs> rented though they don't have to be rented people can still choose to buy those But, yeah, and normally I've seen that they tend to be aimed at young professionals rather than Mm. older people, but not necessarily.
3: (laughs) Seagate?
2: Oh, go on. Uh, Yeah, yeah. If anyone has any other question, go for it. Or if you want to say something, Alejandra, did you want to say something? Yeah, yeah.
3: I just uh, want to say that I read recently that the difference is about the, uh, as uh, Susan said the, um, that in the co housing, the uh, house has their own space for them, which I'm not sure that it, it is uh, the same thing in the co living. But maybe the, the, the other difference we can find uh, has to be with a real collaboration on uh, people, you know, put in their, in their space of living. In the case of co-housing, maybe they collaborate more um, in the domestic task, for example, which I'm not sure happens in the, in the co uh space. Um, yeah, but maybe we have to do a definition because it's not clear anywhere.
1: Hmm.
2: Maybe we have to. I'll put it in one of the tasks that we have to do with co-live. Uh, Alejandro is our uh, ambassador from Chile, so uh we you you can be assigned to this task Alejandra there you go <laughs> it can be your ones so there's a couple of questions that people have asked so Suzanne you put it in your uh, in the spreadsheet up to you if you prefer to ask directly to Lucy or if you want me to read it however you prefer
4: you can read it
2: okay I can read it right so I want to say is this What are some of the challenges of co-design and do people often disagree? Is this your question? No. Okay, great. (laughs) You didn't put the name. Did you? No, you didn't. So that's Penny. So I guess yours is with over 80% of older people wanted to age in place, how can we apply co-living owner occupiers? That's the one. Did you get that, Lucy, or do you want me to reread it? Can you reread it, please? Of course, of course. <laughs> so, with over a hundred eighty percent of older people wanted to age in place, how can we apply co living to owner or occupiers?
4: Owner occupiers.
1: To owner occupiers. So, oh, uh, is this so? Eighty percent of older people want to age in in a particular place. Is that?
4: No, that means to age in place means they want to stay in their home. So. Over 80% of people want to live in their home for the rest of their lives. Um, They don't want to move into social care and often they're financially excluded from a lot of the developments that are being created. Um, Especially these sort of intergenerational housing, as you acknowledge, there's lots of poverty in older age. So how can we, how can we take them aging in place and how can we, try and think about co-living in a different way if um, because often they have space. These people live in places where they have lots of space.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think just, uh, I don't know if it's going on a bit of a tangent, but one of the things that we were working on with City Deal um, and in terms of patients with dementia, because a lot of them can still live at home, it, it doesn't really make sense for, for many of them to go into care because they're not at that kind of deteriorative stage at that point yeah. um is that we were developing um technology to to enable them to stay at home and like little um robots and things like that that would help them remember things um because that's sort of the major the major point of of what a lot of people with dementia are suffering from, and also um, kind of getting consultants in to help them redesign their spaces and and just implement certain um, design features into to help them manage with their illness as well. Um, yeah, so I, I guess again there might be a sense of the monetary thing that that that's the problem. So I guess it's whether. Um, there's a strand of of what City Deal can do that can be done under sort of more social enterprise model, um, or or non profit, which is something that was definitely being looked at. Um, and then you mentioned about co co living as well, Suzanne. So sorry, can you repeat that bit? I'm so forgetful. Sorry. <laughs> no, that wasn't me. Oh, okay. <laughs> No, no,
2: don't <laughs> worry. That's another question.
1: I that, your uh, question, um. that's I question. That's right,
2: don't worry. That's another question that our friend Penny put down, but I'm going to get her to actually say, ask it to you, to unmute herself and actually ask it to you. If it's okay. Uh, yeah, right
5: now. Uh, sure. Um, so... Yeah. Thank, thank you, Lucy. It's really, really interesting. Great talk. Um, so you ran quite a few co-design workshops yes. and I'm really interested in co-design as a concept because I think it's it's so important to ascertain the needs of the people who you're designing for. Uh, but I'm just interested to know um, what it what is it like to actually run co-design workshops and maybe are there challenges and what do you do when do people disagree and what do you do when they disagree?
1: Oh yeah, that's a good question actually. Um, To be honest, I haven't had many disagreements apart from the last one. So the one that I showed you, which was the physical workshop was with my family. So we did disagree quite a lot, but that was okay because they're my family and we can be pretty honest with each other. Um, I was very lucky with the three workshops that I did last year that everyone, Pretty much got on and there is that sense that there is um an art I think it's Mi quan Kwon the art historian does say about how people tend to compromise in these kind of situations um and everyone has to sort of listen to one another I think that's something really important to get across so I guess I was lucky with all the workshops I did that people were getting on very well and I I knew everyone who took part but if I was to do a workshop with someone who uh, or people that I didn't know, I guess I would kind of implement, a, not rules, but like kind of say, okay, if someone's speaking, you know, we need to like respect that and things like that. So I think a set of, yeah, rules or or ideas, I don't want to be too about rules because of the, the kind of um, nature of co-design isn't supposed to be like that. It's an almost free for all um, experience. Um, I was lucky that my participants also worked together in the co-design session. I can imagine in certain scenarios that, someone would just go off and sit alone and do their own co-design thing and make something by themselves. Uh, I didn't have that in my instance, but the the workshop that I did last year in Glasgow that was not run by me, but by Glasshouse Community Led Design, there was someone in our group who decided they wanted to make their own little thing. But when they did come into the group with it, Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but we made a playground and this person made something um, that was quite random. But when they made it and brought it to us, we all just went, yeah, that's great. We can implement that. And no one said otherwise, because it's all hypothetical and it's all meant it's meant to be positive experience as well. So um, yeah, I I, I hope that answers your question. It's really fun doing the co-design sessions, actually. Uh, Everyone sort of enjoys the creative side of it and that's great and and the brainstorming uh yeah just never got too argumentative
5: so that was that was perfect. <laughs> Thanks Lucy yeah interesting to hear so it's kind of about setting a culture and the tone. Yeah
1: I always introduce what I want to get out of it and maybe a little bit about how you know how it's going to go and, and what I expect so yeah I definitely think it's it, there is a sort of culture to that as well so yeah,
5: hopefully that answers your
2: question. <laughs> Penny, do, did you have another question? Did I see you put two questions or um, did someone else, put I,
5: I do, but if uh, if other people have a question, um, please do go first. Anyone else?
2: I think it might be you again, Penny.
5: Oh. Alex. Alex, did
2: you want to ask a question? Did I just see you put your hands up? Yeah, you have to unmute yourself too, darling. Yes, yes, okay.
0: Um, I was just this was just someone that immediately came to me was just um what uh, whether you sort of see any um sort of social or cultural challenges. Um you're saying about how in, in Asia they have a very different kind of way of intergenerational living, whereas here we've kind of we we, we have this sort of um process of of putting our elderly into homes. Mm-hmm. Do you see like how how do you imagine the kind of challenges of the uh, of that kind of cultural um, change being sort of shifted through uh, you know design?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really good question because what I experienced living in Asia, and I think I'd only would have experienced this living in Asia, is that um, young people have a lot more consideration for the elderly, um, whereas here we tend to go, oh, they're old, you know, just put them outside out of mind, which is just not. Yeah, there's sort of less respect perhaps around elderly people for for some people in this country so i think it would be a different ball game altogether because um the sort of yeah proposals that was coming up with like what the city deal were doing with this intergenerational space was really making sure that in uh, older people were included whereas i feel in um like cambodian culture for example elderly people were more included. Um, there's differences as well because of Cambodia's history with um, the, the amount of older people that are still around. But um, yeah, in, in Asian cultures, I I have been aware that they are more respectful of, of the elderly. So I guess that it would be different. So I think there would have to be a lot of research done around that. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely the, the the first point is to understand how the cultures interact with each other and that and then go from there. Um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Does that make sense?
0: I think so. Yeah, yeah, that's good.
1: <laughs> there is yeah. a question. Oh,
2: there is sorry. a question in the chat from Joao. I am really hoping I'm pronouncing your name right, and please forgive me if I'm not. He was just wondering, uh, in your opinion, Lucy, what what is the ideal size of a co living community? Maximum and minimum. Oh
1: my god. I don't know. <laughs> the the minimum and maximum size of a co living community. Yeah. Okay. I guess a uh, co living community can start from like two people. I mean, I think the um, older women's co housing group is really interesting example of, of quite a small community. Um, and I know that there will be a few operators here tonight or, or people who are all, uh, you know, good connections with operators who um, have a large group of, of residents. I guess the main point is as long as a community is um, is created and people feel part of the community that's, that's how it would be. And I guess from the point of view of the sort of community um, definition I gave for that applies to co-design, um, there is no minimum number of people when I was doing my workshops, one of them was just with three people uh that was the amount of people I could get to go along. Um, but then another one was with uh like 10 people. So it's really, yeah, there I feel like there is no minimal maximum. Someone else might have more of a definitive answer than I do. But um I feel that as long as the people feel part of a community, then that's absolutely vital, basically.
2: I'd, I'd, I'd like to intervene in that as well, again, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I agree. I think that it doesn't necessarily really, really matter. Maybe from, from, in my opinion, and that's just my opinion, maybe a co-leaving of two, if it's quite isolated and it's not part of maybe a group of co-leaving spaces or something could be maybe a little small. Uh, it's difficult to really create a community if it's just two people. Uh but uh but I think it can and again this is my opinion. Um it's it's a different type of co-leaving. Uh, uh but I think probably I, I would say five six. That's that's my opinion. I would start to think that with five, six you can start to create a community. We have a 12-1, and sometimes it's difficult, especially if you are in a city because everybody gets very busy. Okay, very easy during coronavirus because everybody is at home. So <laughs> we just have to stay here. But I think if you are in a city where people are very busy, try to really pin them down and, and, and really put an effort into creating the community is a bit more difficult. It also, I guess, it really depends, Joao, on, you know, who, who you're creating the community with, if it's intergenerational, where they are, if it's targeted for younger people, uh, you know. And for a maximum, I don't know. I mean, I, yes, you know, many people talk about Uh, The hundred and fifty being the perfect number because of the research of that uh, person, which I never remember the name. I'm really sorry. I'm sure many of you do. So. But there are other ones which are bigger and then they work. I think for me, the important thing is that what Lucy was saying is the focus on the community and being able to create some community, even if you're talking about 500 units. Uh, you need to be conscious that it's impossible to create a 500 people community. So you kind of like going to have to break it down. Yeah. Dunbar. Well done, Elena, my savior. Yeah. Dunbar number, which is 150. So I, I guess it really depends. Does anyone have any other opinion on uh, size of co No. Okay. No. Great. grad. Then everybody agrees with me, I guess. Uh, Lucy, there's a couple of more questions, which I am going to read to you one second. So one question says, how does coronavirus affect the intergenerational living model? Yeah, I think
1: that's an interesting question. very much that's something that's going on at the moment um i am of the opinion that well-being kind of outweighs everything that's going on at the moment and we should really be focusing on our well-being as well i feel that um again this is like going back match this kind of idea of community when a community is created um it will empower people and um people in that community will feel happier and they'll have a sort of sense of purpose and it will boost their sense of self-worth as well um of course like there are issues I think you know at the moment with um what's happened in student halls how um that's a, a kind of form of shared living or co-living how that's uh how coronavirus has affected them is really devastating that they're not able to um have that kind of full student experience and that's definitely something that um yeah is like a, a negative I guess of, of the shared living side of things but yeah ultimately I feel that um yeah a sense of well-being will um outweigh what's going on at the moment and if we're part of a community and we all stay safe i guess then um yeah hopefully everyone will be all right um and if there's a vaccine that'll be great as well uh there is a question from john
2: john uh feel free to unmute yourself if you prefer if not, i'll read it just you want me to read it just say yes with your head or not yes okay what would be the key elements? It's in the chat. So if you, if you, if you feel yeah. it's easier, you can also read it. I know my Italian accent sometimes is difficult to understand. But uh, uh, what would be the key elements of multi-generational co-living design mm. where adult children co-caring living for with senior citizen parents with dementia? Okay. Maybe better you read it yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> um, okay so is this this is a question about the design side of things so I mean again like I'm thinking more about yeah um the idea that um yeah again it's about looking after not only the the person who has dementia but also caring after the the person you know the carer as well making sure they're safe um but um, it's very interesting actually. I feel if, did you say John that you had currently experience in this yourself? Um, if, yeah, um, if you speak to the Dementia Services Development Centre at the University of Stirling, they have so much information about this really. Um, I can get in touch with you after this and, and give you um, their contact details because um, they, basically are researching the solutions around design and and enabling people with dementia to live at home and be more independent because um, it's absolutely around um, who can care for that that person. And if you're in that situation where you're having to live in with your parent and then, you know, you also need to go out and and do things and leave that person by themselves, you want to make sure they're safe. Um, And so, yeah, they have a lot of research around um, changing the house and um, the different sort of... um, psychological aspects of how, um, changing the interior of the home can, uh, impact the person with dementia, such as, um, like different materials, having different materials in the house, um, can, um, make sure that they differentiate like a kitchen worktop from the floor because it's different, um, yeah, different kind of materials and also, um, making sure that, uh, the things like the the television is like hidden and things like that and, and where the windows are. I can't remember all of the aspects. They're definitely they're brilliant because they are a group of interior designers and architects. So I would definitely get in touch with them um and and have a chat with them about everything because they are so good. And yeah, it's definitely all about the psychological aspects as well. So as I said, like dementia, people with dementia need a lot of light in the in the home. Um, but this isn't not, this is not just natural lighting because having big windows, um, is a, is a chance for someone dementia to escape. So it's making sure that the lighting is actually correct, um, and making sure that, um, signage is correct and things like that as well. So, um, yeah, definitely get in touch with them. Like they're brilliant. If that helps, or you can get in touch with me, but (laughs) I only have their books. So, um, they, they definitely know everything and I'm sure they'd be able to chat with you about, about solutions as well.
2: Thank you. Uh, we also, Are you happy with the reply, John?
0: Yes, yes, thank you, yeah.
2: Okay, you're welcome. Uh, we also have another, do you want me to read the Elena or do you want to go for it? Okay, you okay. will herself, yeah. so she's going for it. Go Yeah.
3: Yes, so uh, when you plan a house for a multi-generational community, you have um, a number of interests involved. Uh, say uh, the senior generation is more sensitive to functionality and the younger generation wants better aesthetics and design and probably more daylight so how would you compromise on these interests and uh, who is the final target audience how, how can you actually combine because uh, i think it's a really complicated issue
1: it definitely is and that's something that um i've had a chat with um somebody else about about the fact that um yeah it's definitely uh, different different target groups and um definitely younger people are wanting different things from older people and that will also impact the way that a space is designed as well. Um, So for the projects that we were doing with the city region deal, uh, the intergenerational space that we were designing um, or they were designing um, was um, for residential space for the elderly but it was mixed use spaces for the younger generation so the residential side was actually aimed at the elderly target audience um, so all of the design features would be um for them and to think about aging and and um, you know design for dementia patients and things like that whereas uh yeah the mixed use side of things were for um younger generation but those things like so one of the um, spaces that that we're going to include into the intergenerational hub was a cafe and um, the cafe had to be designed around um, patients with dementia so making sure that um, the space didn't stress out um, someone with dementia so it would generally be like more spaced out, which actually works quite well now because of the fact that it, it would look like a socially distant space. Um, so yeah, for that sort of space, it would be um, for the elderly as well. So that was sort of the general aim, but yeah, I totally get it. So um, yeah, I guess um, it just depends who your main target audience are and, and how you work for that. So yeah, hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes?
2: Shall I carry on then? Yep. Uh, another question is, why do you think co-design is the best method to explore intergenerational living?
1: Um. Yeah, this is a good question. Um, oh, thank I you. Def- <laughs> I definitely think that co-design is a way that um, you can really determine what um, the needs are for, for those people. So um, particularly for, for elderly people, for example, it's, it's understanding what they want, Um, And I've also explored what women want, for example. Um, Yeah, it's also, uh, and this is kind of what you know, Penny. You were asking as well. It opens, it's kind of open-minded as well. So I think people who go into co-design workshops or or are plunged into them, as I was when I went to the one in Glasgow, because I didn't actually know it was going to be a workshop. uh, I think you become a lot more open-minded, and it it is a sort of hypothetical situation, but in some cases it does and uh result in sort of real world world solutions. So uh yeah, what was the question again? Why do you think co-design? Yeah. Hopefully that clears
2: that up. <laughs> Why do you think co-design is the best method to explore intergenerational living?
1: Yeah. I also think I'm quite biased because I've been um studying this for a year. So I'm definitely for it. Uh but someone might say no. So um yeah feel free to challenge me on that as well. <laughs> Right. anyone would like to challenge
2: Lucy come on Justina I'm missing your voice what's going on with you tonight you're not speaking
3: um actually I I love your opinion and I'm you know full of everything right now so wow I think that is a big
2: compliment, That's
3: like, really yeah, big yeah, compliment. Yeah. yes <laughs> when I see Raul and Justina yeah, but on your my guys events... asking very very interesting questions so I'm listening
2: yeah Good. When I see Raul and Justina at my events and they just listen, I know it's a successful event. <laughs> because
3: yeah, they come that's to... good. this is good indication, you
2: know. Yes, yes, because you come <laughs> to so many events and you always have brilliant questions. And I think if they don't have any question, it's two things. Either the event is super good or they're so bored.
5: Is but they're still here, good? so no. Uh, Penny, yeah. I think
2: you had another question, if I'm not wrong. So maybe your time to shine again. <laughs>
5: uh that's right that's actually it is a very similar question to elena um, uh so yeah i thought it was super interesting when you said look around your space now, could it be suitable for an older person? And it's so true, or like someone with physical disabilities. And uh, that was a really good point, because it made me look around my own space and see, yeah, like if I had a physical disability, it would probably be quite hard to live here. Um, Or if I were much older and not as sort of mobile. Um, And I was just wondering, you know, in your own research and your own experiences, um, have you observed ways in which younger and older generations do use spaces differently. Um, so yes, it's kind of similar to what Elena was asking, but maybe asking if you have any specific ideas on how older and younger generations like to use the spaces um, and how how design can accommodate these hmm. different needs. Um, but maybe you, you kind of already touched on that when answering Elena's question.
1: Well, I guess your question is a bit different because was almost like i feel like this is around what the users are looking for whereas what i'm saying was maybe around what we thought users would want um so yeah it's a it's a good question um and i do think through like co-design i've got to determine how younger and older people use spaces um when i was Uh, facilitating a workshop with young people, they definitely were talking more about tech than older people and how you could use tech in inclusive spaces and how like, but it was interesting also because they also wanted to come away from tech and they said, how can we stop people looking at their phones and interact with one another? Um, Which I think was interesting for young people to kind of come up with that as well was was interesting. Um, Yeah with i guess i haven't necessarily done as much um work with older people um one of the reasons that um i didn't work with um dementia patients directly at sterling is because of uh, the ethical um yeah sort of side of things and and the, their rights and that's interesting as well to um work with um somebody who might be has have been dementia or something like that um they're sort of uh ethical rights might come into play especially in the future and then again it's with like tech it's like data rights might come into into play um but that's getting away from the question so um yeah designing around um older and younger that's an interesting one that i i wish i had expanded on a bit more because i've definitely um looked at designing around men and women and i know you have too penny um so um designing around older and younger is as an interesting one there is a um um i don't know case study i guess why uh, I don't know what they're called they're like aging and design in Scotland or something like that I'll find that I've got a document if you're interested I mean they had actually um done the co-design workshops or asked like a lot of older people how they would want to use their spaces and um one of the things that they were saying there was definitely like a, the um ideas around like communal gardening and, and things like that which actually younger people didn't really want so they aren't as bothered about learning about um kind of gardening and outdoor spaces and things like that Um, and elderly people as well wanted to kind of maintain their independence which is something that younger people didn't necessarily think about at that stage Um, and I guess that would impact how um, a space can be designed around their needs Um, but yeah I definitely think there's more research to be done I wish I could have done more research around different generations at university as well.
5: Thanks, Lucy. Um, And even you, I saw on one of your slides, uh, you looked at under 35 and over 35 uh, with women. And actually, even there, there were some differences, right, in how
1: Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I think it's interesting when women and I'm obviously like not a mother, so I don't know if this is right to say, but like when someone becomes a mother, their whole world revolves around their children. So it's so interesting that when I spoke to the mothers about using the park and I'm not like. I didn't label them as mothers at first, but the fact is that whenever I spoke to somebody who was a mother, they did just talk about how they went to the park with their kids and and their families. So I thought that was interesting. And yeah, their needs were were totally just, yeah, not just on themselves. It was on the family and and the needs of the family. Whereas with the young women um, under 35, single young women, uh, their needs were just totally themselves. Um, And that's, that's totally cool. But yeah, um, I felt that, Maybe the mothers were more uh, risk-averse because they're a little bit afraid of certain things happening in in the park. Um, afraid of, yeah, the street lighting, perhaps the threat of harassment, or they were afraid of, um, yeah, children catching coronavirus and that and illnesses spreading across the park. So, yeah, the needs definitely changed, and I guess even like the needs for toilets, um, that would probably be more. Uh, somebody who's older would want that more than someone who's younger as well. So I think that definitely impacted the research. Thanks, Lucy. Well, I ran out of questions.
2: i got
3: a question.
2: Oh, here we go. Yes, Mercedes. Going yes, so for
3: it. A... in line with what you just discussed about the, the age you know that obviously your needs will change if your circumstances change but is it related to age or is it related to the circumstances because i suppose that if you are in your 20s and you have children your um, needs and priorities will also change so i'm just wondering is if it's Jewish and the you know, related to the age or is it related to to the circumstances?
1: Oh, definitely circumstances. hundred percent. Yeah. I didn't ask any um, women who had children who were over the age of under the age of 35, if that makes sense. Um, But yes, if I had asked somebody in their twenties, then yeah, they would definitely um, feel the same way. I'm sure. And then again, the question I asked earlier, you know, if you look around your space, if you were perhaps, um, Yeah, diagnosed with something that would lead to a physical disability and you're young then 100% your needs would change and you wouldn't be able to um live in your space in in its current form you'd have to have space designed around those needs as well so 100% um yeah that's totally true i guess it's just on more like the uh what's the word you know it's it's more uh common for um you know, people who are elderly to, to be going into care because they can't live in their homes anymore, for example. So it's more common for for somebody who, as they age, to um, have more health complications, and, and that would affect the way that spaces uh, would meet their needs. Yeah. Thank you. Good point.
2: Anyone else? I mean we don't we don't need to go into breakout rooms anymore because there's only 19 of us so we can use this one as a breakout room. Um, I I f- I found your your presentation was very fascinating. I'm I'm really happy that I didn't actually do like a dry run before and I didn't really know in what direction I mean I knew what you wanted to talk about of course but I really didn't know everything so it was very, very interesting. And, and actually, you know, when we talked at the beginning and you said, oh, it's going to be about 35 minutes, do you think it's too long or anything? To me, it just flew away. Like when you said, and that is it, I was like, well, she said 35 minutes, no way. <laughs> like it really went. Like yeah. a lot of very interesting information, super interesting. Um, my, my question is a bit more, uh, not just on the co side, but more like, how do you approach your research as in, you know, how did you start and how did you kind of like built it and, and, you know, why, why did you choose this subject?
1: Yeah, that's a good question actually. Um, yeah. So, um, let me just write that down. I didn't know how interesting everyone would find it because I am a big history fan. So I obviously put a lot of historical facts in and I really start my research by, researching from a historical point of view, I guess that's the art historian in me. And that um, really impacted the way that I viewed my research and viewed like specifically the primary research I did through the workshops. Um, I chose this subject because I was actually so interested in intergenerational living after working at the City Deal. So I just got that job off the fly, like coming back to the UK and everything. And it it was a marketing job. Um, But then when they introduced the topics that they were doing the projects and the intergenerational living project came about, I was like, this is amazing. This is so interesting. And, um, one of the, Uh, Kay said I really wanted to put this into the presentation but it didn't really fit in but um I really wanted to talk about Maggie centers um which is the kind of uh the cancer centers that they pop they're popping up like all over the UK but there's one in Dundee that's designed to um enhance uh cancer patients well-being and and to give them like um a positive space to um sort of live out their their last few days or weeks um and also to deal with um the reality of their illness um, and for the families as well. and when I saw that space and how it being designed so well and so thoughtfully and yeah just focused on well-being, that's what made me think I'm gonna do this and how I'm gonna approach um my my work and I'd already decided I wanted to study interior design um but then I didn't know what my sort of focus would be and so that gave me the focus also it helped that. City Deal sponsored my master's. So they kind of like, you have to do this for your work. Um, But then I took it in a different direction. And that's um, because I had attended that Intergenerational Cities event I attended that and then the next day I had attended an event that was held by the Glasgow School of Art, which was called um, Reconfiguring pa- Places or something like that. And it was all about place making in Glasgow and those themes that I discussed in the first um, set of workshops where it was about young people and their lack of exposure to the arts and things like that, that all came about out of that Um conference and so those two events just really sealed how I was going to approach my masters and yeah that I was going to focus on intergenerational living um, and yeah just continued and then you know uh was really interested in it again for stage my stage three which was my thesis um project um, so yeah, I just love it. I just I just wish I could do more of it, and I love research. And um, yeah, just a bit of a history nerd, really.
2: <laughs> oh my god, I'm so happy! I'll give you so many researches to do. I'll be like, yeah, <laughs> we need to find this out, on Khalif. Go, Lucy. Go and have fun. You and Penny, both of you. I just, <laughs> just to let you everybody know. Uh, um, so I met I met Lucy actually in an event. Uh, thanks to our ambassador in Singapore which was kind of like a small TEDx, no, what is it called, TED? Yeah, TEDx. Yeah, but but TEDx, it's like this, the, the, the smaller version of TEDx. It's
1: like a uh, TED circle event.
2: Yes, exactly. And we were there, and I'm so glad that we got connected because then I started to collaborate with Lucy more and I, I love what she does, and, and you know uh, when she talked to me about her research, etc. And then I got her involved in something that Penny and I are doing together, Kholeive and Conscious Khaliven are doing this event. Can we say a little bit about it, Penny? Are we still keeping it secret? We saying it? Yeah, go for it. Me? Me? No, you. <laughs> me. You me. No, you go Penny.
5: <laughs> oh, okay, sure. Um, so on November the nineteenth, I think it's six thirty. Um, UK no 6.30 UK time uh, we're holding a round table looking at um, sexual assault and harassment in co-living uh, which um, during, during various bits of research I think um, I've come to learn and I'm sure more than one person has come to learn that sadly this is a very under-discussed topic um, so essentially we're bringing together some co-living operators, some people who work in the space of advocacy for bringing awareness to sexual assault and harassment. We're, um, we're bringing them together in a roundtable to discuss how to raise awareness of this issue, um, how to, to educate co-living operators on it and, and in essence how to handle incidents and ultimately prevent incidents as well. Um, so myself and Kate, um, and Lucy have been working on this project together, and it's fair to say we're not approaching it from the perspective of being experts ourselves. Yeah. Um, it's more that we we want to bring together people who have a bit more knowledge and experience, and really faci- facilitate a conversation around it, and hopefully help remove some of the stigma as well of talking about you know such an important issue.
2: Yeah. So thank you very much, Penny. Uh, I. I mentioned this one, A, because I obviously love the fact that we are doing this, but also uh, because I've, I think, you know, I'm so in love with co and what we do because that's what happens all the time. Like people just meet on our events or on events which are connected. And then from there, more things around anything that's got to do with co that could be from safety to tech to anything Uh, start to kind of like take shape and place and uh yeah i just really love it and you know i hope every time you come to our events you also have the possibility to connect to some people and to just make things happening that's it bye suzanne suzanne says she has to go so thanks for being here uh okay sorry that was a little bit of a of a distraction i'm really sorry sorry lucy uh, anyone else has any other question that is either related to Lucy's presentation or if you want to ask anything else or if you want to start to kind of like chat and just bring something to the table, I'm happy to stay a few more minutes and do that like a big kind of like a networking room. No? No? Anything else you would like to add to Lucy? When is the sexual assault? So I said, was that elderly? I know much. Point of old, older, elderly, I know much prefer to be called senior citizen. Language is important. Yeah, true. I also think it depends personally. I also think it depends on what country it is. Some country are a bit less bothered. Um, and I guess, I don't know, what's your experience on that, Lucy?
1: Um. Yeah, I guess like the way that we had framed it with City Deal was by um, referring to senior citizens as the elderly, um, but I'll bear that in mind for for future research projects and things like that. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I, I really think that it
2: depends on what country like Italians yeah. care a little bit less, just a little bit less.
0: But My I father know, cares a lot. Your father. Yeah, you know, I call him an elder and he goes, I'm a senior citizen, I'm not elderly.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess it really depends. In here as well, yeah. um, I sometimes when, I say, when yeah. I say old people, they go like, oh, it's yeah. we're, not old, we're senior citizens. Yeah, yeah, sorry, 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 you're right. Yeah, I'll be one of them soon, so maybe I, I will yes. be bothered about it also.
1: Yeah, and I guess it also depends what the, the ages we're talking about as well. So, cool. yeah. Um, I guess in this respect, I was kind of talking about over 80s. Um, okay, fair enough.
0: Okay, I understand. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, um, but yes, I apologize if I offended. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know that somebody is going to get offended about something I've said. Um, yes. Yeah, it's, it's worth. Yeah, well, I'm not
0: offended, Lucy. My father <laughs> will <would> be offended.
2: It's your father listening. We can do like a collective apologies. I'm sorry. No, sir. no,
0: no, no. He's. uh yeah, anyway. Again. No, we're
2: only joking. We're only joking. Fair
0: enough.
2: Okay, then uh, please join me to have another big round of applause for our fantastic Lucy. Beautiful. Well done, Lucy. Thank you so much for staying this long and thank you everybody else for staying this long.
0: Thanks again for joining us today. And from all of us here at CoLive, we hope you learned a lot and maybe even picked up a few pieces of wisdom to help expand the co-living movement. To check out the CoLive membership that will allow you to connect with other leading co-living professionals, or even just to stay updated on future podcasts and upcoming events, head over to CoLive.org. Again, that's Co-liv.org. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back for our next episode.